Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm director of ECFR. And this week, from a very quiet and contained or self-isolating Europe, we're going to be talking about the refugee crisis or not that has erupted on the Turkish-Greek border and the consequences of the war in Syria and the actions by Russia and Turkey and others that lie behind it. To help us make sense of all of this, I am joined by an all-star cast down the line, co-chair of ECFR. We have from Stockholm, I think, Carl Bildt. From Istanbul, we have Asla Aydin-Tashbash, who's a senior policy fellow at ECFR. And from Brussels, we have Julian Barnes-Stacey, who's the head of our Middle East and North Africa program and also a senior policy fellow at ECFR. So maybe before we go into the topic, we should talk about the, the elephant in the room, which is leading to a lot of us spending a lot of time on video calls at the moment rather than meeting people, which is the subject of coronavirus. How do you think that is kind of changing the whole idea of, uh, of Europe and globalisation? Carl, do you want to go first? Yes, Mark, you call it an elephant in the room. I would call it is uh, is numerous elephants that are rushing around in a very dangerous way. I think we are at the moment in a multi-crisis situation that is quite unique. We have, of course, the corona crisis, which is both the sort of the purely medical and the pandemic itself. Then we have the accelerating economic effects and they are getting worse by the day, more or less. Then we have on top of that, we have slightly minor, but it adds to the picture, the oil price war between the Saudis and the Russians, which is also adding to the mayhem that we now see on the global financial markets. And then, of course, Europe in the middle of this has to handle the Idlib refugee Turkey situation. And then you could add that they are supposed to do come to Brussels, the leaders, to sort out the budgetary, the MFF, the, the long-term budget for, for the European Union, that was the crisis two or three weeks ago that is nearly forgotten, but it has not been sorted out. So what is the bandwidth in the EU system for handling all of this? Well, they will have to increase the bandwidth somewhat, but even so, I would say that most of it will be taken up by, I would say, the economic, financial, political effects of the coronavirus, the medical ones, will be handled primarily by the member states. And that means that even if the refugee Idlib crisis is a severe one, it will be on the back burner. And one can only hope that sufficient energy is devoted to them in the decision-making machine in Brussels in the the weeks to come. But I wouldn't be too optimistic on that, so to say. So Julian, you're sitting in Brussels. Have things totally ground to a halt there? Things are very quiet here. I think that, that people are struggling to, to maintain focus and, and operations given the, the, the pressures to shut down, as Carl said, the kind of competing pressures coming from above, seemingly from, from every direction. And I, I'm, I'm not sure that, that Brussels is really managing to, to place itself at the centre of that and, and shape any of these processes as, as it would like to. And kind of as elsewhere in the world, I think people feel that they are being pushed by events rather than vice versa. Maybe we should go to the refugee situation in Idlib. Asla, you, maybe you can tell us a bit about what the situation on the border is like and how things look like from Turkey. And then Carl can maybe tell us whether we're back in 2015 after that. I almost want to say 
oh, well, that, that was yesterday's crisis, as in uh, I, here I am sitting in a country which seems to lurch from a crisis to another. It was Idlib and then refugees, and today's big issue is the coronavirus first case appearing in Turkey. But back to the refugees, it's very much connected to what's been happening in Syria, primarily Idlib, where Turkey is now engaged in a direct war with the Syrian regime. Erdogan has been uh, to uh, Moscow and worked out some type of a ceasefire with Vladimir Putin, very much uh, with the sense that this would be temporary. But meanwhile, Turkey did something else. As you know, uh, as has been in the headlines, encouraging refugees in Turkey to go to the border. I, I think Ankara had a number of interests, number of issues uh, that it was seeking. First and foremost, I think, uh, re- revisiting the 2016 refugee deal for a new financial arrangement. It's no secret that Erdogan is not happy with this European mechanisms for dispersing this aid. He'd rather get a direct check to Turkish government or institutions and not, you know, money that goes into projects. He's also not happy that this three plus three, six billion euros are not all paid out. So there was sort of a financial, it was an, an, an effort to get Europe's attention. Uh, and I think it was also for dom- done for domestic reasons. Uh, you had Turkish police encouraging refugees in Turkey, many of them at this point, Uh, going over to the border have not been Syrians. We have 3.6, 3.7 million Syrians living in Turkey, but they are largely settled in Turkey with legal status and work permits, 1 million officially working. But then on top, I think there's half a million more refugees from Afghanistan largely and Iran and Iraq and other parts. And I think the scenes that we saw on the border, primarily the Turkish-Greek border, was the refugees largely from Afghanistan wanting to make it to Europe. But this time, of course, the border was literally sealed, uh, really sealed in the sense that Greek police has used measures they had not used back in 2015. We had the Turkish Ministry of Interior announcing ever-growing figures of refugees that are supposed to have departed Turkey. But in reality, the numbers were really in the thousands, not in the tens of thousands that you saw in 2015. So that brings me to my final point, which is the other motivation the government here has had, domestic pressure. We've had a calamity after calamity, an economic decline ongoing, but also very uh, sort of heartbreaking news of Turkish casualties, Turkish uh, soldiers uh, dying in Idlib. And I think that uh, the government's uh, Syria policy is under greater scrutiny than it has ever been with this, a new engagement in Idlib, which the public is not prepared for. And the refugees are also an unpopular issue. I think there is a sense that we are, you know, quote unquote, stuck with these refugees because of the government's Syria policy and Erdogan assigns some level of culpability uh, to the refugee issue, to the presence of refugees for his, in explaining his major loss in last uh, year's um, local elections. So there was a domestic pressure on the government and uh, they wanted to ease off the pressure building up uh, by saying they are actually sending refugees to Europe. We couldn't pick a fight with Russia because they had uh, air superiority in Syria and Turkish troops in Syria are vulnerable to Russian strikes. 
it's not possible to pick any more of a fight with the United States because Turkey is essentially trying to ward off sanctions that could come any moment. There's no point in pick, picking another fight with Bashar Assad. So Europe uh, sort of served as this very useful, I think, punching bag for the Turkish public at a time when the government felt very much constrained by developments in Syria. So, Julian, I'd like to go into the situation in Syria quite soon, but maybe before we do that, given that this is ECFR podcast and that the Europeans feel very much um, in the front line because of the kind of muscle memories of, of 2015. Carl, how much of a, of a crisis do you think this is for Europe? I know that you don't think that the political class has got as much attention to devote to it as possible. And in fact, in many ways, the situation we're in is probably a result of of a lack of attention paid for many years now as Europe's had its kind of geopolitical holiday from what was happening in Syria? Well, there wasn't a much attention given to it uh, before we saw the corona crisis exploding. We saw both the President of the Commission and the President of the European Council and the President of the European Parliament together going down to the Greek-Turkish border. And uh, uh, what I think was the miscalculation in Ankara, among them, by the way, was that they were going to be able to force the borders open. And what actually happened was that the Greeks were able to seal the border. We now have a rush of European Frontex or whatever trying to help them. It is somewhat more difficult on the maritime border side with islands and the rather short distance between the Turkish mainland and the most nearby Greek islands. But numbers were really limited. And as Asli pointed out, in Ankara, they were presenting numbers after numbers after numbers of people who had crossed, and it was all fake. And those things are found out. I think the borders are, I wouldn't say it under control, but the situation is very different from 2015. The entire Balkan route, I wouldn't say that they are sealed, but they are fairly difficult to get through. And when you get up beyond the Balkans in the direction of Western Europe, we will not see a repetition of, of the Austrians and the Germans opening the borders as they did in 2015. So we're in a fundamentally different situation where I think the Erdogan game of forcing a major crisis in Europe has essentially failed. Some people are saying that there is another crisis, which is the fact that we are creating a humanitarian crisis by, you know, there are 40,000 people who are stuck in overcrowded camps on the Greek islands, but also... We're, we're running away from the very idea of asylum and undermining a sort of basic norm in our response. That argument is certainly there. That argument would have had certainly more validity if these had been people coming, for example, from the humanitarian catastrophe that we today see in Idlib. But they are not, as Asli pointed out. What we've been seeing is primarily they have been busing young Afghan men to the border. And we've lately seen videos also of Turkish security forces, de facto sort of uh, pressing them and, and reinforcing them in attacks against the uh, Greek border, shooting tear gas on the Greek side. So, so it is not really refugees that we are talking about in the sort of in the normal sense. That being said, what you say about the situation on the Greek islands, yes, a very difficult one. Situation in Idlib, very difficult one. Turkey does deserve support for what they've done taking care of all of these refugees. But the Erdogan-generated crisis, I think that one is a different one, and that one has backfired. So what happens next then? Because it, we had these talks earlier in the week in Brussels, which didn't seem to lead to anything very concrete. 
I mean, what 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 happened was roughly what was to be expected, that the two sides sat down and they had their respective grievances against each other. And it's a fairly long list. And then they said, well, let's try to sort out what it really is. And they've tasked the two foreign minister, Borrell, on the European side to try to sort out. And then they said, we're going to have another meeting within the not too distant future on the highest level and see on the basis of that if we can do something. So they did initiate a political process and that was a good thing. And now we hear information that's supposed to be, we'll see what happens these days, uh, Merkel and uh, Macron coming to Istanbul next week. I understand that Erdogan is trying to get Boris Johnson there as well. I don't know really what purpose that will serve if it's a crisis between Turkey and the EU. But the political process between Brussels and, and, and Ankara has been initiated. And that, if that's an outcome of it, well, at least something. Mark, if I could jump in, I think it's very important to get actually a high-level dialogue because it was almost non-existent for the past two years. So that in itself is something. As Carl has pointed out now, uh, both sides are going to put forth sort of their grievances. Actually, Turkey, I think, has today handed something in writing their grievances about the 2016 agreement, where they agree, where they disagree, and all of that. But where I see this going is essentially trying to do, Turkey and the EU, trying to do some type of a humanitarian mission or even reconstruction inside Syria now. Even though it's not related to this topic, to the refugees now piling up on the Greek border, it is probably going to result in some type of a mechanism and aid for reconstruction inside Syria, uh, which is something Erdogan really wants to see. So that leads us, Julian, to, to your questions that you spend your time worrying about. I mean, it is a very odd <laughs> chain from the catastrophe of Idlib with you know a million people being forced out of their homes to this kind of slightly strange EU-Turkey <laughs> diplomatic crisis. But if we go back to Syria, what is the, the situation there now? How is this deal which... Aslan mentioned before, which Putin and Erdogan had sealed, uh, holding up. You know, where are all the poor people who've been forced from their homes going? Yes, I mean it, it, it's a horrific situation, but I tend to agree with Asla that Europeans ended up being more of a kind of domestic punching bag and pressure girl for for Erdogan than really a, a direct player in that. And I don't think Turkey was ever really looking for Europe to, to d- decisively shift the agenda or the situation on the ground in Idlib. Clearly, this is a situation which is predominantly driven by, by the Russians in, in support of the Assad regime and, and by Turkey on the other hand. And I think Erdogan was always looking to, to either cut a deal with the Russians and, and, and pressure them in, in, into some compromises or to get the Americans to, to, to lean in more assertively. I don't think there was ever... ever any real sense in Ankara that, that the Europeans would step up in, in any meaningful sense. So I do think it was a, a release gauge for the Turks. And, and also, I mean, it, it feeds into a, a range of other issues, you know, the desire for, for money. I would also mention Libya, where you have increasing tensions between Turkey and, and, and a number of European states, the Eastern Med, and so on and so forth. So there's a broader picture here, which I think we need to see the situation in. In Syria itself, the situation is bleak. The, the, the regime with Russian military support has pushed up to a million uh, Syrians towards the border. Turkey is not allowing any of them 
into Turkey itself. So there are no new refugee flows into the country and certainly none that are, that are moving in, into Europe. But you have a horrific humanitarian situation on that border. Turkey tried to, to, to push back militarily against the Russian-backed offensive, but effectively folded in a political negotiation that was concluded in, in Russia a few days ago and, and, and effectively allowed the regime uh, to move forward into territory that, that previously had been assigned to, to Turkish influence. So you do see this continuing movement forward by, by the regime. Not many people really believe that either Damascus or Moscow actually want to hold by the new ceasefire, and so we're likely to see a new escalation down the line. And then, you know, once again, Turkey will be left to, to fight this battle by itself. I think Europeans are completely consumed by other issues, and, and, and predictably enough, will fall away from this issue, and when the crisis comes back to the fore, will suddenly pronounce themselves agitated. But that hasn't really translated in, in, into any meaningful action on the ground. And so, ultimately, with the Europeans disengaged, with the Americans disengaged, this is going to have to be settled between the Russians and Turkey, it seems. And, and Russia does seem to have the upper hand. And I think the question now really is, what does that settlement look like? Can you move towards a scenario whereby the Turks are able to extract enough concessions to protect the, the, the Syrians who do fear the regime moving in? There may be deals to be had with the Europeans, but I, I would just say that what Asley was talking about was obviously kind of reconstruction in non-regime controlled areas. In other parts of northern Syria, controlled by Turkey rather than, than the, broad, the broader country or even likely Idlib itself, given the fact that the regime is moving in and you do have a strong presence of extremist groups and, and so forth. So it's a bleak, hard situation, Mark. The outlook is very difficult for Syrians first and foremost. And I think, you know, there is a, a humanitarian imperative to step up engagement there. I think Europeans actually feel that the pressure is slightly off, given that Turkey is not allowing these refugees to move into Turkey and that Europe believes that it has now succeeded in blocking that refugee path via Greece. Carl, do you think that Europeans should be more ambitious in terms of what they're, how they're responding to this? I think looking back, of course, we should have been more ambitious in our approach to the Syria conflict. But that is, as we know, slightly easier said than done. I think we are in a situation now where the instruments that you have are fairly limited. We are should certainly be ready to increase our humanitarian assistance. That certainly includes all of the people that are now suffering in Idlib. And how we reach them, I don't know, but the UN agencies are there, and that might be the, the best instruments that we have available. As for reconstruction, uh, I tend to agree with you, Leon, that's slightly difficult to see how you do reconstruction in, in a place where we have bombs falling. It might be that we could say that there's a a ceasefire or political agreement in Idlib that we can trust and that we will be stable and that we can start reconstruction there. Is that likely? Uh, the Russians do have a rather strong agenda. I mean, they see Idlib as a hub of terrorist activity. And I would guess that a number of the terrorists that they have identified there have their origin in Central Asia or Caucasus. Uh, so for Russia, this is not a distant issue, it's a nearby issue. So the likelihood of being confident of a settlement in Idlib that would make reconstruction proper possible. What about this whole question about where the humanitarian aid should go and whether that whether one should be willing to, to go into parts of the country that well that are now controlled by the regime? 
that is already happening. I mean, if we take what we are doing from different EU government side, is for the financing different e, different UN agencies, and and there is an element of humanitarian help going in. And as you I saw that there was UN assessment mission that was in Italy the other day. But there is a difference between that and the reconstruction that would really make it possible for people to move back or settle more permanently, or the economy and society to revive. Uh, the possibilities for that, I think the Europeans would be very firm in saying. We need a political settlement in Syria before we can engage in sort of reconstruction in Syria under regime control. And as to how solid do you think the the kind of Russia-Turkey deal is? I mean, do you think that the situation is now basically going to be more or less kind of stabilised at a low level of kind of tension and violence? Or do you, do you think that there is a chance that things could really escalate and get very dangerous? Stabilize for a few months, maybe, but we don't really know what could happen in six months' time. As both Carl and Julian have pointed out, Russians basically see Idlib as a terrorist-infested area that ought to be under regime control, and they really do not want the 2.7 million people who are living in Idlib inside Syria. These are mostly people who come from other parts of Syria. They are families of opposition members and whatnot, and people who live in Idlib city currently, but also obviously the radical groups like Al-Qaeda offshoot, HTS, or Turkestan Islamic Front. So it's a very difficult situation also long-term for Turkey. You know, long-term, whatever the outcome is, even if Turkey Turkey ends up with a portion of Libya as a safe zone, uh, that portion will be Turkey's own Peshawar, so to speak, uh, an area that will always be a long-term headache uh, in term, from a security angle. There are no easy solutions also for Europe, but I, but I do think that we will see some movement for Turkish-EU joint humanitarian aid and missions uh, inside Syria and, and into Idlib, probably using uh, the UN, as Carl has pointed out. Could I ask, how does it play on the domestic scene in Turkey as we speak? Turks, of course, always rally behind their troops. And, you know, the country was uh, the 36 soldiers dying in, one, in, a, in an airstrike uh, two weeks ago was uh, something that had a huge impact on Turkish society. Having said that, Idlib deployment has come too sudden. And at this point, the public is tired of the Syrian conflict. Refugees are very unpopular. And there isn't a huge support for uh, long-term engagement in Idlib. It's not like last October's Turkish uh, deployment, fighting the Syrian Kurdish forces, SDF, and to carve out a safe zone. Uh, Whenever it's a question of fighting terrorists, so to speak, uh, as as the government described SDF Turks, uh, rally behind the cause. But when it is this open-ended engagement, possibly fighting even Russia, fighting the Syrian regime, but possibly even fighting Russia, I think the public opinion is very divided. In the polling that I have seen, support is much lower you know, than I expected. Same, same thing goes for Turkish involvement in Libya, low levels of support. So that is a huge constraint also for the government. They now have almost 20,000 troops deployed. And with no air cover. Hence, you know, Turkey and Russia have huge differences on Idlib and in Libya, but th- there are limits to how much Turkey can push Russia. 
with 20,000 troops sitting there with uh, vulnerable to Russian airstrikes. Can we maybe end by reflecting a bit on what all this says about this project of a geopolitical Europe? Carl, we spent a lot of time over the last year thinking about how to improve the the Brussels-based machinery, and we even wrote a paper on it together, thinking about how the EU could retool itself for a more geopolitical era. And in some ways, things have been very promising. Charles Michel seems to be determined to play a much more active role on the on the world stage than um, some of the than his predecessors as president of the European Council. Ursula von der Leyen talks about a geopolitical commission, which is contrast with Juncker's idea of a political commission. And Borrell is trying to put his mark on the EAS and on the foreign policy machinery. But there does seem to be quite a lot of turf wars in Brussels. Whenever I go there, at least as much energy is going (laughs) into defining whose turf is what as dealing with the outside world. And we saw, you know, all three of them very active in their own different ways on on these issues. How do you think it's worked as a sort of test case for, for a new geopolitical Europe? Well, I think you're right to point out that the rhetoric in Brussels and the awareness of the task ahead has certainly changed. What we've seen in the beginning, as you also pointed out, there's been an element of different actors running around in different directions. That normally happens at the beginning of any new administration, if you phrase it like that. And there's also the element of some sort of intellectual searching the way for what should be done. Then the world is a complicated place. And the world has now sort of descended upon Brussels with these uh, multi-crisis scenarios. And one would have to sort of maneuver, make up things as one hand in the crisis. It's going to take time. I think there are lessons to be learned from this particular crisis. I, I think, as we all said, one of the possible good outcomes is that we establish a political dialogue with, with Ankara. There's a lot of issues that need to be sorted out. In the summer of last year, a decision was taken by the EU foreign ministers to cease all political contacts with Turkey. That was due to the dispute over the territorial waters and economic zone around Cyprus. That was, of course, stupidity, because Europe must have an intense dialogue with all of the major actors in its near abroad. Then it's going to take some time to deal with Libya, which is a problem that's been reported out. We have Balkan issues, we have Idlib, we have Ukraine. There's certainly not a lack of issues that needs to be dealt with. And some slight hiccups in the transatlantic relationship. Well, these are all topics which I'm sure we'll return to in in future podcasts. We will keep an eye on on how this situation develops. And I think we will probably, maybe in the next episode, return to the topic that we had at the very beginning of the podcast, which was uh, the coronavirus and what it means for for globalisation and for Europe. But there's still one thing we have to do left on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Julian, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? So I am reading William Dorimple's new book, The Anarchy, which is about the, the establishment and, and the rise of the, the British East India Company in India and, and how they kind of gradually muscled their way in until they ran the place in a pretty brutal fashion. So that's a, um, taking me back a while, but, but quite a good read. And he's a fantastic writer. So he, he weaves a great story through this historical period. Carl, what's on your bookshelf? Well, some different ones, but one is a small uh, I picked up in Delhi a couple of weeks ago, Pax Sinica, implications for the Indian dawn of uh, the expansion of the powers of China by uh, Samir Saran and Akil Deo, a book that has um, got very good reviews. As a matter of fact, a blurb by me on the back, I see as well. I've just started uh, Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, 
by Rebecca West. It's an old book, uh, Travels Through Yugoslavia, uh, her six-week trip. It's beautifully written. I have just started it, but I feel like with the research in Turkey, I need to bring myself up to date on what's happening in Turkey's neighborhood, at least in terms of the Balkan history. But I also want to flag two recent articles by council members, one uh, by Natalie Tocci, She's the director of IAI in Rome, and the other one by Kati Piri. Both have written for Politico, and calling for essentially a, a moment to rethink the relationship with Turkey, that the refugee deal needs to be fixed. And yes, there are problems with you know Turkey wanting to use refugees in its dealings with the EU, but we also need to do our end of the bargain, which we haven't done. Great. And I am reading a book by a couple of authors, Charles Gavin, Louis Vincent Gav, called Clash of Empires, Currencies and Power in a Multipolar World, which looks at how increasingly geopolitical conflicts are being um, played out through uh, the weaponization of, of financial markets and currencies. It looks particularly at the clash between uh, China and America and see, looks at what it means for Europe and for other powers on it. It's been really fun talking to the three of you. I hope that you are all making the most of your enforced isolation as a result of the, the coronavirus and uh, look forward to having many more discussions in the days and weeks ahead. But for now, from Carl Bilt, Asler Aydin Tashbash, Julian Barnes-Dacey and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. We'll put links up to all of the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. The research for ECFR's podcast is Valeria Baranikova and our editor is Marlena Riedel.